All right, Revelation chapter number 9. Revelation chapter number 9 is uh, where we are at tonight as we continue our study in the book of Revelation. Many of you have asked me over the past um, couple of... uh, uh, last Sunday and last Wednesday about uh, the online and our app, uh, getting it up to date with the messages. Everything is uh, currently up to date now, so if you've missed a lesson of Revelation, you can go on there and you can uh, download and listen to the, to the uh, lesson. You can also download any of the uh, notes along with it, so all of that's available to you uh, if you uh, desire to uh, listen to it, if you've missed any of them, all right? Revelation chapter number 9 uh, tonight. We're going to start right in the top of your outline. Does everybody have an outline? Anybody else need an outline? I just want to make sure we didn't miss anybody. Anybody at all? All right, Revelation chapter number 9. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about the sixth trumpet. The sixth trumpet is where we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 9. As has been mentioned several times thus far in this study, the book of Revelation is mostly a description of judgment to come. That judgment begins in chapter number 6 with the opening of the seven seals and ends in chapter number 19. And so we started in chapter number 6 as we began to open the seals. And now we have found ourselves in chapter uh, number 9 as uh, we are opening the seventh seal. Which along with the seventh seal, we know that the seven trumpets and the seven vials or the bowls of wrath are all a part of that seventh seal. And it takes us all the way to chapter number 19. 13 of the 22 chapters of this book deal with the terrible judgments that result from the breaking of the seals of the seven sealed scroll. At the opening of the seventh seal in uh, chapter 8 and verse number 1, the seven trumpet judgments began. And uh, we talked about the seven trumpet judgments, excuse me, uh, five of the seven trumpet judgments the last time that we met together. These trumpet judgments do not follow the seventh seal. They are the seventh seal. Many uh, people uh, have a misconception about this, that they think that the seven trumpets and the seven vials of wrath are successive to the seventh seal. That is not true. This is all happening at the same time. They are the seventh seal. Now, as we look at these, we notice that there are spans of time that take place during these uh, judgments, but they are all part of that seventh seal. Um, they are uh, the entire period of judgment upon the earth is a trio of judgment or trio of sevens, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven vials, or bowls of wrath. Thus, the seventh seal has fourteen parts: seven trumpets and seven vials of wrath. Just to kind of wrap it up and give you a thought process there. Thus far, we have studied through the fifth trumpet which is the first of the three woes mentioned in chapter 8 and verse number 13. These three woes are the final three trumpets and are called such because they are more severe than any of the previous judgments. We know that uh, the judgments are continuing to get worse. They are, they are continuing to uh, uh, cause even greater destruction. We, we began with uh, uh, small destruction in, in, in retrospect to where we are now. And so the judgments are intensifying. We also know that there was a moment where God uh, uh, sent the 144,000 and the innumerable multitude of people were saved. There was literally a pause um, in judgment so that grace could once again be revealed. And we're going to find ourselves here in the sixth trumpet again. And another pause is going to take place. Uh, Again, this is literally God's grace being revealed even in the great tribulation. When the fifth trumpet sounded, the fallen star, Satan, and we talked about this the last time we got together, was given the key to the bottomless pit. When Satan opened the door, evil spiritual beings were loosed to torment the human race for five months. So the last time that we were here, if you remember, uh, uh, literally uh, Satan, the fallen star, as the Bible refers to him as, was given the key to the bottomless pit. And Satan opened the door, and we talked about that as locusts, uh, the, the demons came up from the bottomless pit and began to uh, infiltrate the land. And we compared that over to the book of Exodus uh, with, the, uh, with Pharaoh and uh, with the judgments that took place there with Moses and, and Moses telling him to let his people go and, and Pharaoh saying no. And, and so the judgments came upon the land. And so here we are, uh, the last time we met, that last uh, moment when, when Satan was given the key to the bottomless pit. 
And uh, literally, they were loosed to torment the human race for five months. And so now we are in the sixth trumpet. So what is the sixth trumpet? First of all, number one in your outline, the army of 200 million. The army of 200 million. We're going to start reading in chapter number 9 and verse number 13. Chapter number 9, verse number 13. The Bible says this, And the sixth angel sounded... And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, <clears throat> pardon me, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loose, which were prepared for an hour, and a day, and a month, and a year, for to stay, uh, slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were two hundred thousand thousand. And I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire, and a jasneth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was a third part of men killed, by the fire, and by the smoke, and by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouths." For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. And the rest of the men, which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither represented they of their murderers, or excuse me, neither repented they of their murderers, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. So here we have the sixth trumpet uh, being revealed, and we have an army of 200 million. Now, I know that seems like a lot. It seems like, a, how can there possibly be an army of 200 million? Back in 19, I believe it was 96, uh, China declared that they had an army in their uh, country of 200 million. I remember that because I remember uh, uh, one of my uh, uh, pastors saying, as, as he was talking about the book of Revelation, and he compared that, that picture, he had a picture, and he threw it up on the screen, and it was almost like it, they were all little, little uh, um, tiny men because it, the picture had to be expanded so much to make an army of 200 million. So it is very possible today that there could be an army of 200 million, so we have to take it literally. So let's start right at the top. At the sounding of the sixth trumpet, John heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Now we remember, just in case you've uh, not been here or maybe you've forgotten, that uh, the, he heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Remember, this is in the throne room. This is where we've been going back and forth. We, we've been in the throne room for a little while. We, we came back to earth and we went back to heaven. And uh, so here we are. He heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. This is the same place where the saints were that were crying out for vengeance. Do you remember? And so this is where we're at. We're in that throne room uh, uh, again with the golden altar. To understand the imagery here, we must remember that there were two altars in the tabernacle. The golden altar of incense stood in the holy place just before the veil to the holy of holies where God was. This altar represented the prayer of God's people. I don't have time to do this tonight, but uh, if you study the tabernacle, there's two altars in the tabernacle. And uh, this is the golden altar of incense that stood in the holy place. If you remember, uh, you enter into the gate, you enter into the door of the Holy of Holies, and uh, you go through several pieces of uh, furniture or several items, and you get all the way to the veil. Who is the only person that is allowed into the Holy of Holies? The high priest, that's right. Everyone else could go to the holy place, but that is where they had to stop. And that altar represents... The prayers of God's people, the prayers of the saints, just prior to entering into the Holy of Holies. Then, in the outside courtyard, now we, we've talked about the outside courtyard, we talked about that around Christmas time, um, if you remember. Uh, we talked about the outside courtyard there, um, was the brazen altar of sacrifice. 
fire was taken from this altar and carried in the golden censer to the golden altar of incense where incense was burned. And we find that in Exodus chapter number 30. We'll read that. The Bible says in verse number 7, And Aaron shall burn thereon sweet incense every morning. When he dresseth the lamps, he shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burnt sacrifice, nor meat offering, neither shall you pour drink offering thereon. And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once in the year shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. So here we have the actual... uh, uh, the actual atonement, we had the actual uh, altar taking place. As the blood was taken from the altar of sacrifice and sprinkled on the four golden horns of the golden altar of incense, the people were taught symbolically that prayer and worship are based upon sacrifice because without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. Now, I know I've said a lot right there, so let me just kind of clear it up in case we're confused. We believe... Um, I I should say, I'm not going to say we, I'm going to say I, um, based upon the word of God, and I believe that most of you here would agree, that salvation has never changed from the inception of time. From the very beginning of time, Adam and Eve, when they were created, um, when sin entered into the world because of Adam and Eve's sin, they were told, uh, if you remember the story of Cain and Abel, they were told to make a sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice were they told to make? A blood sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. What type of blood sacrifice were they to make? A perfect spotless lamb representing Jesus Christ. They did this sacrifice of atonement one time a year. Now you say, Pastor, why did they do it one time a year? Because as, as we've talked about in a span of, uh, that God is not bound by time, and so here he, they, they atone the sins one time of year as a picture of Jesus Christ. Because once and for all is all it takes. When Jesus Christ ultimately died on the cross, uh, when he went to that cross and he shed his blood for our sin, it was a one-time sacrifice. God does not, Jesus does not have to go back to the cross. Jesus will never go back to the cross. Once you are saved, you are always saved. You cannot lose your salvation. No matter, how, uh, no matter what happens in your life, you cannot lose your salvation. There is no sin that can remove your salvation. Now, it's very important because there, there are folks out there there, are, there, there are churches out there that are saying that you can lose your salvation, that you have to be re-saved. Listen, if Jesus is not going to re-go to the cross, then I don't need to be re-saved. His blood that was shed once for all. It was a one-time occasion. Now, the Bible says, should I continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. I should not want to live in sin. As a Christian, if I'm really saved, I have no desire to live in sin. It's very applicable to children and to parents. I have three boys. You know that. My boys, they know the rules. Do they ever push the rules? You know my kids. (laughs) They do. They like to push the limits. And if I don't put a limit, they're going to keep pushing. And so eventually there comes a moment where they have pushed it a little too far. And what has to happen then? Discipline. Discipline. Now, I want you to know something, and this is a side note, and this one's for free. There's a huge difference between discipline and punishment. I try not to punish my children. Punishment is out of anger. Punishment is saying that what you're doing is wrong and you can't fix it. Discipline is teaching them how not to do it again. Does that make a difference? It makes a huge difference. So I try to discipline. So it's the same way with God. God, he does not punish us. Because what's punishment? Punishment's hell. And I can't go to hell because I'm saved. 
What does he do? He disciplines me. The Bible is clear about that. That the word of God is for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. That's what it's for. Why? That the man of God may be thoroughly furnished. And so he disciplines us in order to help us to get back to where we need to be. We can't lose it. And that was the same way it was at the very beginning of of creation, the same way uh, it it was for all the Old Testament. They shed the blood for the remission of sins. And so it was a symbolic, uh, uh, the, the altar was symbolic of the prayers of the people prior to entering into uh, uh, the, the Holy of Holies. And so there you have uh, the, the long story short of the blood of Jesus Christ is still the same no matter what generation that you've been a part of. And by the way, when we talk about the tribulation, uh, there was a question that was asked to me about that. They said, is salvation the same when, they, when, they, when the 144,000 go out and they begin to evangelize the Jews? Is salvation still the same? Salvation is still the same. They have to believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and that he went to the cross. Salvation has never changed and it will never change. Now, it is from the four horns of the golden altar that the voice comes in verse 14, saying, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. Now, I wish that um, I could show you a picture, but they really do not have an accurate picture of this golden altar when it talks about the four horns. I don't know that I, to be honest with you, and I told you that there would come times like this throughout the study, I don't honestly know that I can answer for you exactly what it looks like and why necessarily it had the four horns Um, on the golden altar but this is what I do know and and what those four horns represent but this is what I do know is that the alliteration here of the four horns and the four angels um, they correlate with one another one another they go well together and so the four horns of the golden altar the voice comes in verse number 14 saying loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates since these four angels are bound They are fallen angels and they are not holy angels. We talked about that a few weeks ago. um, That whenever uh, whenever Satan, um, whenever he fell uh, from heaven, he took an army of demons with him and uh, they were cast into uh, hell and they are bound there. And then we talked about last week that they were loosed. And the only way that they are loosed, they are loosed by authority of God. He gave them the ability to be released. And so here we are. These four angels were bound. And they are fallen angels. They are holy angels. Because uh, the release of these four angels is precisely timed. Look at verse number 15 with me. This is very important. Verse number 15. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. They were loosed at the exact moment that God wants them loosed. We talked about this a few weeks ago, and I know I keep going back, but we've got to make sure we put it all together. Nothing happens without God knowing. Let's take it a step further. Nothing happens without the approval of God. Does everybody understand that? Nothing happens without the approval of God. It goes all the way back to the oldest written historical book in the Bible, the book of Job. Um, Job, we know that he went through a lot, but the only way that he could go through the things that he went through is if God allowed it to happen. Such as it is here, these four angels are bound until God releases them. And it was precisely time for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. Now, this simply means that there is an exact hour in God's calendar when these fallen angels will be loosed and the third part of men will be killed. Can you imagine? I want you to think about this for a second. A third part of the men will be killed. We've already dealt with a third part um, before, but now another third part of men are going to be killed, and they're going to be killed by four angels. It's pretty powerful. So you can't tell me that the enemy is not powerful. You also can't tell me that you can defeat the enemy. We don't have the power to defeat the enemy. He is a very strong and wise crafted being. 
What we have is we have the Holy Spirit of God. That's what we have. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. It didn't say greater am I than he that's in the world. It says greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. So when we're trying to, when, we're, when we feel like we're being defeated by the enemy, a lot of times the reason we're being defeated is because we're attacking him on our own power. Listen, the only person that can defeat him is God himself. Yes. A third fell. That is correct. Um, you're a good mathematician. Um, but ultimately, ultimately, the bottom line is, is that God, the greater being, is greater than all. And so what we have to understand is that we need God's help and God's power in order to succeed in our Christian life. That's the only way it's going to work. So... He loosed these to the third part of men to be killed. At the opening of the fourth seal in chapter number six, verses seven and eight, one fourth of the population of the world was killed. And here an additional one third will die. Therefore, these two judgments alone will result in the death of one half of the world's population. One half of the world's population. It is absolutely... Um, it is absolutely amazing to me that literally with the authority of God, because that's what all this is, that half of the population will be taken out. What it tells me is this, and, and I really want you to get this, and I don't know that I can explain it the way I want you to get it. But this is what I really want you to get. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. The Bible says, but ye shall receive. Anybody know the next word? Power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon me. Are you? That word power is a very interesting Greek word. The word there is dynamos. Which is where we get our English word dynamite. How many have ever seen a building imploded live? How many have stood within a couple of miles of a building being imploded? Anybody? Okay. When, I, I've been there in Jacksonville. I was about 18 years old, and they imploded a building downtown. And I went just because I'm a pyromaniac. I actually wanted to, like, press the button, but they wouldn't let me. Um, but I'm you had to stand two miles away. That's the closest that you could get. And I remember standing over there and watching, and I remember hearing, I could faintly hear this guy on a bullhorn, and he was saying something. I have no idea what he was saying. But all of a sudden, he started talking, and it got real quiet. And I remember within a matter of 15 seconds, literally, as I'm watching this building implode, the ground is shaking. And I'm thinking, this is cool. And I watched that building in a matter of probably five or six seconds go from a perfectly erected building to nothing. And I got to thinking, we really as Christians, are you listening to me? We really as Christians have no idea what the power of God is. We often claim the power of God in our lives. <laughs> We often want to say, well, the power of God is upon my life. But I believe with all my heart, if we really understood that, if we really gravitated to the fact that we have a dynamite power in the Holy Spirit of God that really can totally take control of our lives and totally, literally implode us, and literally change us, and literally give us the power, and, and literally do as the Bible says, for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but he's given us a sound mind. He's given us the power to overcome that fear. If we really could tap into the power of God, I really believe our lives would be so different. I mean, here he is in two judgments. He has eliminated half the world's population. World, not United States. World population. That's the power of God. And can I tell you something? As a Christian, you have access to that power. You have it. 
All you have to do is take it. He's wanting to give it to you. He wants to distribute it. I, I, I get frustrated sometimes about people talking about certain men of God, and they're like, man, I just wish it was like that again. Can I tell you something? It can be. It can be. We are making the choice for it not to be because we're not tapping into the power. In Revelation chapter 9 and verse number 16, John sees an immense army numbering 200 million. Chapter 9 and verse number 16, the Bible says this. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000, which is 200 million. This army might be taken literally or it might be taken equally interpreted as an army of demons. A literal interpretation cannot be overlooked because such an army is indeed possible today. For it was reported years ago that China claimed to have an army of 200 million. The description of the army as having breastplates of fire and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone has been interpreted symbolically, but it could very well be a literal picture of modern warfare. And we covered that a little bit in our previous lessons about the, the picture of modern warfare versus what John is seeing because he's limited by the things that he knows. The use of terms such as horses with breastplates of fire and heads of lions was apparently the closest comparison John could make in describing this awesome picture. I can tell you this though, whatever John saw, it resulted in terrible destruction because twice, he states, the third part of the men were killed. So uh, we don't know exactly what all he saw, but whatever it was, it was very powerful. Concerning those who were not killed at the sounding of the sixth trumpet, John says this, and this, is, this again blows my mind. They repented not of the works of their hands. Can you imagine for a moment, can you imagine half the world being annihilated? And you're going, well, that's a bad day. But I'm not turning from and changing anything that I'm doing. I can't, I'm, I just can't fathom that. I mean, I feel like that if I was there, I'd be going, what can I do to prevent this? What do I need to do to change this? <laughs> then I think to myself, here I am in the year 2016, and what am I doing to change what we have in America right now? What kind of difference am I making? I'm just happy with life as it is, and status quo is good, and things that are happening within our government and within our world, I'm just letting them pass by the way, and I'm not standing up and saying anything. I'm just as guilty as I'm here standing saying, how in the world can you not repent? You know, it's amazing when we get into the patterns of life, how difficult it is to change them. When we get into a certain pattern, we get, we get used to certain things and we just think, you know what, oh, I'm, I'm sorry that that's happened to you. And that's unfortunate that that's going on over there, but I'm going to stay in my pattern. I'm going to stay just the way I am. It's important that as Christians, we, we look and we say, no, I have to pattern my life not after my comforts but after what God desires for me they repented not of their works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood chapter number nine and verse number 20 then in verse 21 John lists the sins that they would not repent of they would not repent of being murderers they would not repent of being sorcerers and they would not repent of fornication and they would not repent of thefts the word translated sorceries is the word from which we get our English word pharmacy, which has the root meaning of drugs. This indicates there will be a widespread drug use during the tribulation period. And certainly that's probably true because they're going to look for any way out. There's going to be a high drug use. Fornication, of course, refers to all forms of sexual immorality and probably the disregard of the sacredness of marriage. People have asked me about marriage during the tribulation. I don't believe that there is going to be much in the way of sacredness in marriage. 
Um, I believe that what's going to happen is more and more of what we're seeing in our day and time, it's a lack of commitment. It's a lack of every man for themselves and every woman for themselves and every pleasure that we can have in a moment will take. And I think it's going to be even amplified more as the tribulation occurs and is happening. And so it's it, literally they would not repent of their fornication. They would not repent of their theft. That characterizes the general practice of dishonesty and the disregard for the rights and property of others. If you've ever seen a riot, you know what I'm talking about. Um, they begin to go and they begin to loot and do terrible things uh, to businesses and other places around, which is kind of the environment in which the tribulation will be like. It is clear the trumpet judgments become progressively more devastating, yet there is no evidence there will be any changes on the part of humanity. These judgments produce fear and suffering, but unfortunately it does not produce repentance. Number two, and I've got to hurry. The angel and the little book. The angel and the little book. Chapter number 10, we're going to start reading in verse number 1. Chapter number 10, starting in verse number 1. We're going to read all of chapter 10. We'll do it quickly and uh, gather our thoughts. The angel... And the little book. The Bible says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left on the earth, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had heard, uh, or excuse me, when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw uh, stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are therein, and the earth and the things that are there, uh, therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be no uh, time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound the mystery of God, shall be finished, as he hath declared to his servants, the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in the mouth sweet as honey." And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it up. And it was in my mouth, sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So the angel and the little book. In chapter 10, as in chapter 7, we have an interlude between judgments. This time between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. In chapter 10 and verse number 1, John sees another mighty angel come down from heaven. The description of this angel is strikingly similar to the one of Christ in the first chapter. And there are correlations there. This angel had in his hand a little book open. Apparently, the little book contains the rest of the message John will deliver. And so here we have, if I can just uh, uh, picture it for you, we have John... Uh, who is seeing an angel who has a little book in his hand, and God is instructing John to go take the little book from the angel and to take that book and not only take it from him, but to eat it. And uh, there's significance to that, and we'll talk about it in just a moment. But apparently, inside of this book is the rest of the judgments to come. And this is when John, it was going to be revealed to John through this book. The angel set his right foot upon the sea and his left on the earth, which is the posture of victor defeating, on in, uh, defeating an enemy and would indicate that possession of the entire world is about to be accomplished. In other words, God is about to win. Are you with me? It's all about to culminate. We, we have led up to this point of the judgments taking place and, and, and God doing what he's doing, but now... It's, it's literally time for God to take over. It's literally time for people to see God for who he is. For the just and, 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 and judging God that he is. And literally, he is going to defeat, uh, ultimately, the enemy. I don't know about you, but I'm very thankful that I've read the last chapter of this book and I know who wins. And I know where the enemy is going to end up. 
And that's why I believe with all my heart that today the enemy is becoming more fierce because he knows his time is at hand. He knows his time is coming very soon. Can I tell you something? The enemy knows the Bible. The enemy is very well aware of what's going on. He's not oblivious to this. Matter of fact, he's probably more intelligent than the most intelligent Bible scholar in the world. He knows what's happening. He knows the intricacies. He sees the writing on the wall, if I can use that term. And because of that, he is becoming more fierce. And he's becoming uh, uh, more involved in, in, in trying to get his last, if I can excuse not being disrespectful, his last hurrah. Because he knows what we know now is that literally in chapter number, uh, chapter number 10, the, the angel that is there has set his foot on the sea, set his foot on the earth to say, listen, it's over. God is the victor. In verse 3, the angel cries with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. What an amazing scene this must be. That literally, this angel cries so loud, it's as if a lion roars, and, and, and in such power that literally seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, while the book of Revelation is usually considered an unveiling of God's coming plan, in verse 4, John is commanded to seal up those things which the seven thunders utters, or uttered and write them not. So God said, hey, listen, uh, you, you can't tell anybody what... The seven thunders just said. Now that's very interesting to me. What's interesting to me is not that God doesn't want us to know everything. Because the Bible says that there are some things that are a mystery. And they will be revealed in the end. What's interesting to me is that God had John write it. That God had John write down, do not say what the thunderings are. Do you know why I think that is? How many of you in this room are sitting there going, huh, I wonder what that is. You know, this thing, I wonder, could it be this? Could it, we're curious people. I believe with all my heart, if you really read the word of God and you really begin to, to find yourself passionate about the word of God, as you read the word of God, I believe that God puts things in it that appeal to our senses to allow us to want to continue reading and continue studying. Because you see, the, the word of God is, a, in essence, a biography. It's a love letter to us as Christians. And just as any good book that you've read in the past year or two, and you've, you've, you've read a book and you felt like, I can't even put this book down, because what is it doing? It's, 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 it's appealing to your senses. I believe that the Word of God does the same thing, and even more so because the Holy Spirit is revealing it to us. So here we have in the, in the book of Revelation, God literally saying, listen, you cannot tell them what these thunders are saying. Now, we are not told why John was forbidden to write them down. Uh, what the seven thunders said, and it would be futile to speculate since no definite facts are given about the contents of the seven thunders. Now, in verses 5 through 7, John describes a solemn scene of the angel lifting his hand to heaven and swearing that there should be time no longer. This has been one of the most misunderstood phrases in all the book of Revelation because people tend to think that this means that time will cease at this point. It does not mean that time will cease at this point because as we continue reading, we find out that there is still time. And uh, so th this is misunderstood. The Greek word used here can be translated time or it can be translated delay. It's obvious that time is not the meaning here since time continues on earth after this event. We're still not done with the tribulation. Therefore, the idea here is that there should no longer be an interval of time or delay because the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants, the prophets. In other words, there is going to be no more pauses. There is going to be no more of God extending his grace. There's not going to be a pause between judgments anymore. It is now no longer a delay. What is about to happen is going to happen. It's going to be successive and it's going to be destructive. This statement refers to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies concerning the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. 
The time is about to come when Satan will no longer be in power and the prophecies of the Old Testament will be fulfilled. We find these in Zechariah chapter number 14. The Bible says in verse number 3, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against their nations, and when he fought in the day of the battle, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it shall move toward the south. What does this sound like? The battle of Armageddon. It's all about to happen. Huh. You mean the Old Testament people knew about the battle of Armageddon? Remember? The Bible always complements the Bible. The Bible always complements the Bible. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel. Yea, shall, you shall flee like as you fled from before the earthquakes the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. We're going to be on white horses in case you're wondering. So if you don't like horses, you better get used to it. We're going to come with him. The great thing is I don't have to fight. Because all God has to do is speak. All he's got to do is speak. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from thenceforth, or from, excuse me, from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. In Revelation chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, John is commanded to take the little book and to eat it. I've got to hurry. Uh, this command is a beautiful, symbolic truth often found in the scriptures, where literally someone has been told to eat a book. We find a similar situation in the book of Ezekiel, and I don't have time to tell you the whole story. You go home and study it. But Ezekiel chapter 3, the Bible says, Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest. Eat this roll and go speak into the house of Israel. He's talking about a scroll. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, Son of man, go, get thee unto the house of Israel, and speak with my words unto them. The symbolism is obvious. The eating of the book means that before John could continue to be a spokesman for God, he must digest the word of God. He must digest it. The Bible says, study to show thyselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Hide thy word in my heart that you might not, what? Sin against me. There's something about digesting the word of God. There's something about knowing the word of God. That's why the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says much study is a weariness of the flesh. That was my college life first. Much study is a weariness of the flesh. He wants us to study. We, that, that word approved, that's a very interesting word. Study to show thyself approved. I don't know about you, but I want to be approved by God. How do I get approved? I study and here's what John was doing. God was literally telling John to digest the word of God. Christians must always digest the word of God before we can be a spokesman. John took the scroll and he ate it because he was to carry on his message to prophecy again before many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. When John ate the little book, he said, it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I'd eaten it, my belly was bitter. At this point, it seems John was to assimilate the rest of the book of Revelation before he wrote it down. Why was it sweet to the mouth and bitter to the belly? Very simply because this judgment of God is literally sweet to the saved. And it's bitter to the unsaved. However, the truth is that when we think about the sweet and the bitter, it's because, as I just mentioned, it's sweet to the believers, but those who have rejected God, his revelations, the words are bitter. 
True prophecy is always like that. It's sweet to those who accept it and bitter to those who reject it. There is a reward for every believer, but there is a rebuke for the unbeliever. How wonderful prophecy is for the Christian, but how tragic it is for the non-believer. Thus, the message of the book of Revelation is both bitter and sweet. It is, as we study the word of God and we look at it, it is sweet for us as Christians. And the reason that it's sweet as honey to us as Christians is because we know where the victory lies. We know that it lies in Jesus Christ, and we know that he's already claimed that victory. And it's bitter to those that are lost because their ultimate demise is in the lake of fire. But it should motivate us to go and tell others about Christ. One of my favorite candies, don't, don't go out and buy it, all right? One of my favorite candies, and you're, some of you are going to think I'm really weird. My favorite candy is Sixlets. How many of you know what Sixlets are? Okay. Sixlets are six chocolate balls, very small, and they come in a container, a little plastic sleeve. There you go. And what you do, if you eat them like I do, you take that sleeve and you put it in your mouth and you just pop one at a time. And I've never been able to just eat just one pack. I mean, uh, just one. Because when sweet gets in your mouth, you just want more sweet. That's what you want. You can relate that to the candy that you enjoy. And I don't know about you, but as Christians, that's the way the word of God should be to us. It should be so sweet to us that we have the desire to know more and to know more, and to know more about Christ. And not only to know, but to share and to show that love with others. Yes, ma'am. Sure. In John's case, though, when he's talking about the sweet and the bitter, for John, in the book of Revelation, it was referring to the difference between the salvation, the saved and the lost. God was giving a distinction that for the saved, the, where we're at in the book of Revelation with the tribulation, for the saved, it is sweet because we're not, we're not going through that. But for the lost, it was bitter. And, that, and, and I believe with all my heart that when John was seeing all of this, um, and, and interpreting it, John was, uh, was seeing it from both perspectives. John was understanding it from both perspectives of the lost and the saved. Yes, ma'am, Miss Gretel. It is, it is an evangeliz, evangelization. You'll, we'll get to the point where the 144,000 are removed. Okay. Any other questions? Good. Well, thanks for being here tonight. And uh, we will uh, pick up in chapter number 11 next week. Uh, things begin to uh, intensify. Uh, things begin to get uh, more interesting. Uh, I know, it's already in, intense, isn't it? But, um, you know, the truth is this. It, and like I said to you a moment ago, this is, this is knowledge, and knowledge is power. And what is it power for? It, it is not for us to sit on and go, man, that's too bad. It's to motivate us to go tell the world that they need Jesus Christ, to, to bring them into a place where they can, they can know about him and know more about him. Because I don't know about you, I don't want anybody to have to go through this. I don't want anybody to have to, to experience this. And, and we have to be very cautious as Christians because I think sometimes we get very apathetic and we get very comfortable because we're like, well, that's not us. Chapter number four, I'm gone. I don't have to worry about anything anymore. No, we do have to worry. Our worry is not about us. I, worry is not the right word. A concern, our concern is not for us. Our concern is for others. The Bible says that, that we, we, we should have such a passion to save some by, from the fire in the book of Jude. And that, that is what our, our goal and our desire is as a church and as individuals, all right? 
Well, thanks for being here tonight. Uh, and uh, now, it's Valentine's Day on Sunday. Okay? So we're going to love God and come to church. Amen. Um, I know that you might want to take your sweetie out to lunch and all that kind of stuff. Take your sweetie to church first. And then you can take her anywhere you want to, all right? Um, and, uh, no, we'll have a good time on Sunday. And uh, I hope that you'll uh, plan to be here and worship in the Lord with us. And uh, it'll be a great day. I want to encourage you about one other thing before we go. Um, we have coming up, um, and I haven't talked about this a lot, but we have coming up in the beginning of March, the first Sunday of March and the second Sunday of March, uh, and, the, and the Wednesday in between and the Saturday, uh, we have a, a missions emphasis week. Um, on March the 6th, Irfan Abdulatif will be here. You don't know him. Um, but he is a missionary to Iraq. He is an Iraqi. He was born in Iraq, and uh, he just got back from Iraq. When he goes there, he pitches a tent and camps right next to ISIS. And he is literally a missionary to those people. He has started 14 churches in Iraq. And um, uh, now when he comes, uh, he'll tell you a lot of stuff, but there's a lot of stuff he can't tell you for the protection of the, the people that are there and for himself. Because he can go anytime he wants. He can go over to Iraq and spend uh, plenty of time there and then come back. And, and they'll let him take anything he wants to into Iraq. They, they, don't, they don't keep him from doing that because he was born there. And um, so uh, he's, he's, he's a wonderful man. Um, I, I believe with all my heart that you'll thoroughly enjoy him um, and uh, listening to his ministry uh, and what God is doing in his life. So he'll be here on that Sunday. That Wednesday night, uh, which is the 9th, we're going to all be in here together, our youth and our adults, and we're going to reveal all about Cape Verde, our missions trip to Cape Verde, Africa, and uh, tell you about the cost, tell you about the, the, uh, the details that we have so far about that trip. And then on Saturday, we'll have a missions banquet, Taste of the World, and uh, we'll have a great time. Two of our missionaries, one uh, that we're taking on for support, Joey Kellett, will be here. Many of you know Joey and his family, and uh, they'll be here. Uh, on that Saturday night, and so will Woody Baker. He's a Bible translator that we support out of Papua New Guinea. Uh, he will be here as well. And so they'll be at our banquet, and then they'll be at church with us on Sunday, uh, the 13th. And so it'll just be a real missions emphasis week, and uh, we're really looking forward to that. And then two weeks after that is Easter. Can you believe it? Um, I know. <laughs> we're going to blink our eyes twice, and we're going to be in August. Um, so lots of things happening that we're excited about, and I know that uh, you're excited about it. So you begin to pray about uh, who you can invite, and uh, you plan to be at every one of those services, and we'll have a great time. All right, let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you'll encourage us and strengthen us this week. May we be motivated by the things that we've heard, and uh, Lord, the things that we understand. And uh, Lord, that, that we'll be motivated to see people saved and lives changed. And, and uh, Lord, put our fears aside and, and share the truth of Jesus Christ because we know that if they, do not, if they do not know you, they will have to go through this horrible great tribulation. And certainly we cannot imagine uh, the torment and the, and, the, and the things that will happen. And so God, I pray that you'll give us a passion for souls. And Lord, as we reach out to our communities. Lord, we love you. Give us a great rest of the week. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.